Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MLOps podcast. I'm your host, Dean, and today I have with me Almog Baku. Almog is a serial entrepreneur and technologist. He is a maintainer of Kubernetes, the tool every data scientist loves to fear, and Almog eats it for lunch. He's an expert and a consultant in the fields of cloud native, AI infrastructure, and foundational models. And he is the organizer of MLOps Tel Aviv and OpenAI and GenAI Israel, which are popular communities uh, with more than a thousand uh, members. He's also the creator of the newly released Raptor.ml, which is an open source framework to help you transform your Python code from notebook to scalable production. Hi, Elmog. Thanks for joining Hi, wow, you set the expectations so high. Like now I'm blushing. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you here. We've been having these conversations offline, and this is a good excuse to let other people in on the on the finer details. Uh, you're, you're going to get to know Elmog. He has a lot of really interesting opinions and thoughts uh, and experience in this world. But let's start with the beginning, right? What was the first machine learning model that you ever built? Wow. <laughs> I think, I think this is a funny story. So it was like back at 2019, like, like early 2020, like everyone was at lockdown and I just closed my company and I was like, huh, what's the big next thing? It's probably cyber, but it's probably also AI. So it's probably should be like in the intersection of cyber and AI. It was totally bullshit. I just bullshitted my way. So I was like, all right, so if I want to build something, I better learn it. So I took the first AI course and I built this dog breed classifier, totally useless, but it helped me like understand, huh, it's not that complicated. And then like you dive in and see it's very complicated, but I don't know. I, I, I guess like the, the, the only way to feel the big next thing is just to get your hands dirty. And today we have LLMs. Yeah, I just wasted my time building something nobody knew. But yeah. Well, we're going to get to that uh, in, a, in a moment. I guess the other thing that, uh, at least to me, the first time I heard it was uh, crazy, is how does one become a maintainer of Kubernetes? So <laughs> it's actually a funny story. So with my previous venture with Remoto, so we built a system that enabled Tor-free data, like things mm -hmm. like Tor-free calls, 1-800, but for data. Sure. So back in 2015, we didn't raise that much money, like even like today. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about 2022. So we actually took this bet. We was like, all right, so we need to save with the cost of R&D and DevOps engineers because what the heck is DevOps engineers? It was relatively new. So we just bettered about this unknown technology. And so the, basically the way to become a maintainer is to solve bugs because Kubernetes had a lot of bugs back then and somebody had to fix them. So me and the team joined and start contributing. So yeah, how, how did you end up with like all of the fascinating things you guys doing at uh, Dunzam and DVC and like, I think you introduced uh, an integration with PyCaret, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a bunch of uh, integrations and unfortunately at this point, I don't write enough code, even though I sometimes do a bit to just to 
preserve my sanity over the weekends. Um, but I think originally what led us to build what we built is sort of a higher level understanding that it's strange that it doesn't already exist. And then sort of saying like, well, if no one built it already, maybe we should try. And uh, maybe some uh, confidence, maybe too much confidence and, and hubris that we believe that we could actually succeed. Uh, but then a few years later and a bunch of code lines later, uh, we have we have a lot of really awesome integrations with a lot of really awesome tools that other people uh, built and, and we try to contribute wherever we can, uh, but also a platform that's useful to a lot of people. I guess the the bug way is is really true, right? Like I think that the one of the easiest ways for people to contribute to open source is when they try to use it and realize that something doesn't work. Um, and then you get this escape hatch, as we like to call it, call it, that you go one layer deeper and actually look at the code and, and contribute. That's a gateway drug for some people because then they become addicted to open source, which I'm totally for. Um, but I guess specifically, do you think that the fear of Kubernetes in the data space is, uh, is justified? Yes, of course. <laughs> if I'm a data scientist, like every other day you have a new paper released, you have a new, a new LLM or foundation models that are basically terrifying me because I might lose my job. And now to add to that learning like Kubernetes and engineering and like what is this, this reconciliation loop and like manifest and deployment and like what? It's too complicated. How, how can you keep track? Interesting. Maybe uh, data scientists need to write to start writing papers about Kubernetes and ML, and then data scientists will learn <laughs> that might be an indirect way to do it. So they will uh, do a research, how to understand how the model of Kubernetes works. Maybe yes. this way, like. Yeah, like do it, do it by the way. Then like in the end, you'll have one line. You now know Kubernetes and everyone will be like, I can't believe we learned it. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is a, a cool story. And I uh, definitely recommend solving bugs for things that you work with. Uh, if you can, it's a really great way to get a deeper understanding of the tools that you work with. Uh, but now maybe taking a step back, right? Let's let's dive into um, into the the things that are actually interesting. Um, so obviously, a lot of things have changed in the past. Uh, what is it now? A few months. Uh, things are continuing to change. Uh, but I'm curious what your predictions are for ML and MLOps and where this world is headed. So it doesn't. It doesn't heading anywhere, and, and I think that's that's one of the biggest problems. And you see many many venture capitalists stop investing in MLOps, stopping in, uh, investing in traditional AI, which is a bit weird because you know all of these foundation models built on some on top of some foundations, which are this classic AI. But mm -hmm. I I think that the MLOps world took the wrong road. Like, mm -hmm. um, at some point, like MLOps started like as a fork of, of DevOps, but it never got merged and it reached this point that the fork is so different than the main or the master branch that you can't merge it because it's just doing something different. Um, sure. But it does, it doesn't work that way because the research team is like, it's so tiny, you know, compared to the rest of the R&D team to compare to the rest of the engineering team. So it can't work that, that way. 
And to add to that, you have all of the foundation models that just reshuffling all of the cards and like, what do I do? Like a uh, thing that I, I just heard the other day, a very weird story about a large enterprise that refactored their model, the recommendation system to use OpenAI GPT-4 for, for recommendation system. Like, interesting. I, I don't even understand how like it's possible because it work. Yeah. yeah, because theoretically it should be way cheaper using traditional ML methodologies like structured data, but they, I don't know, they got convinced that it's cheaper and better. Okay, interesting. Um, I, I guess the the question is, so I, I mean, the, there is two aspects of this, right? Which is one is the connection between uh, ML ops and DevOps, which I, I kind of, I, I'm not sure, like you phrased it in a, as you said, the very blunt way. So I'm not sure which percentage of me agrees with what you're saying versus disagrees. I think that the the problem that you asked about, like how we started with tags of the problem that we recognize is that whatever you build for MLOps has to be communicative with the existing infrastructure in DevOps. Because if you build something that's totally disconnected, then things fall apart. But on the other hand, as you said, that there there are the, the two things that we notice that are, that are meaningfully different are the scales that come with data and working with data that's totally different from what DevOps uh, traditionally handles um, and the experimentation uh, nature of, of machine learning where you, uh, it, the, the analogy used is funny because this is how we think about it as well in, in, in uh, software development, when you fork uh, off from the main, it's because you're building a feature and that's going to be merged back into master. In data science or machine learning, you fork on off of main, you're doing an experiment and some experiments fail and they never get merged back in. And that's fine. That's part of the flow. So, um, so, so it's interesting sort of this analogy is I like thinking about it that way. And I, I think you put that, uh, well, and then there's this other thing that you mentioned, which is like, what's the relationship between ML ops and what's now starting to, to be called LLM ops. I don't know how I feel about it, but. Uh, but, it, but we like inventing our terms, right? Like that's important. Uh, but there's this whole LLM thing, which is some things are kind of ridiculous. And a lot of it is because people have no idea what they're doing is it's so early and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I guess going to this second point, because I, because I think like people have more well-defined thoughts on the first one, like how, how are you thinking about this, uh, uh, sort of, uh, chat GPT and generative models and things like that? and the role that data scientists have to play in that. Okay, so you ask so many questions. That's <laughs> better. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I referred to something, you, I, so I think you said, it, it's well put, you said like, we build solutions that are communicating with the existing platforms and tools. And to add to that, I think that it's not only to the existing platforms and tools, we should build solutions that's communicating with existing processes and existing mm -hmm. paradigms. Sure. And again, it's, it's, it's so funny to think about the foundation models and the LLMs because they're changing everything. But I think the important thing is that most of the organizations can't have uh, a university, a, an internal university inside of them. Mm. Like, unless you're Google, you can just do research for the sake of research. You need to report to some investor. You need to, to, to provide some ROI of your work and you need to 
provide some results. So you need to build something useful. And this is mm -hmm. especially true when you are building production and operational use cases. So I'm not talking at all about analytical use cases, about reports. That's not my field. And to be honest, I, I don't find it personally very interesting. So I'm like most of the thing I'm probably going to say is about operational use cases. Sure. And, and there, like we see more and more companies shifting gears towards the, the apply data scientist mode. Yeah. That's so I guess, how, how do you define apply data science? Yeah. So like applied data scientists, they are basically data scientists, but they are aiming to build production grade models. And I want to be very clear about it because I heard so many definitions. I'm not talking about data scientists that's researching a real example from the real world. No, I'm, I'm talking about data scientists that's uh, researching around a real example from the real world, but they also going to deploy to production and to make sure that they building the model. It doesn't have to be they writing all of the code, but they should have the notion for it. Um, and it's like a huge state of mind, right? Because when you're building something for production, you need to remember, hey, this is what I have in production. This is what I don't have. This is the kind of data is existing in my data warehouse, maybe because it's in the data warehouse, that's not really existing in production and we need to build it in production. So mm -hmm. if it's like a very complicated calculation, like, I don't know, uh, amount of clicks over the last hour, like rolling window, and this kind of data is existing in the data warehouse, but not existing in your raw data, in your data lake, then it's going to be a nightmare to productionize it. So you need to think about this kind of information ahead. Like it's, when you start researching, when you open your notebook, you need to understand what you have and what you don't have. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You need to write clean code. If you know that you are, you have like a, a potential injection in your code. Like if you know, it just don't just protect from it. Right. Most of the time we don't have cases like that, but uh, especially now with LLMs and such, like it's very easy to inject some, some piece of code or, or something like that because systems becoming very complicated. Maybe you want to extract and, and gather some data from LLM and to take that to a linear regression model and like doing fancy stuff. So when you think about the production in your mind, and you always remember that, hey, this is not just a research. It, someday, if somebody going to deploy it, then you write a, a very different program. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, um, I have a talk uh, that's called ML in production. What does production even mean? And uh, one of the starting slides, is I show an image of a forest and I asked uh, if, if you build an amazing machine learning model and no one ever uses it, does it matter? Uh, and uh, Sometimes people raise their hands, especially like in academic environments, because I give this talk also at universities and they say, well, if I publish a paper, then maybe it does matter, even if it's, if no one ever uses it. But my, my sort of longer term response is that sure, you could publish papers and that's important, but at the end, the goal that you have is for this to affect the real world. 
And that's usually if, if you, the work that you're doing remains in research, you never uh, affect anything outside of your, uh, whatever archive, um, then it, it probably doesn't, doesn't make an impact on, on the world. And that's a shape. So if you don't think about all of the things that you mentioned, which are great, uh, sort of concepts to think about, then you're going to do a lot of work. Um, and you're, and, and if you're doing this work, you're probably a really smart person and then it's not going to have any impact on the real world. And that's a shame. So, uh, so I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I guess what are the responses for that? That's. Oh, no, I think most people agree with that. Like most people are just not thinking about that because the, the work that they're doing is very, you know, uh, as an engineer is. As an engineer, you sometimes build for the sake of building and you don't think about the broader context of like what's going to happen with my uh, product. Um, and in general, I think that it's healthy to have some degree of product thinking, right? Like it's it's not not everyone should be product managers, but it doesn't matter what your role is. If, if you're a marketer, if you're a salesperson or if you're a data scientist, thinking about things in the context of this is something that needs to be wrapped in some package where someone can actually use it leads you to a lot of counterintuitive um, uh, sort of uh, conclusions that you don't think about if you're just thinking about it, like I'm doing something for the sake of doing it, um, which is also fine. But but it, that's to me sounds more like a hobby than a job, right? So, um, so if you, th this is sort of my, my take on that. I guess that I, I don't really know how this changes with, uh, with again, with ChatGPT, LLMs and things like that. So so how do you think like the, the job of applied scientists is going to, to look now? So I think that's, that's basically where things got interesting because the foundation models, they are reducing dramatically the barrier of to entry. So the very basic essence of data scientists and commoditizing the AI for everyone just changes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because every kid today can write a, a very, I don't know if useful, but something that work, right? Yeah. So, so you have more data scientists that found themselves, Hey, I can do just research and I need to build something that goes to production and more and more organization actually adopting this, uh, uh apply data science approach or paradigm. And you have more and more engineers that can actually help these data scientists and take things to production. And on top of that, now, because you have the foundation models, you don't need to, to use these very expensive data scientists to build everything. You can ask your engineer to do that. So eventually, I believe that these two, three worlds, I don't know how to split it, they will consolidate into this new role of ML engineer or AI engineer or whatever you want to call it, which is some kind of a scientist that understands like models, understands some level of engineering, not backend engineer. He, he wants me to know like how Kafka work and scaling and all of this kind of stuff, but he will have to understand or she will have to understand how to connect the dots from the AI mm. world, right? How to compose a prompt that yields some relevant value that you can use with another really uh, linear regression model and how to do some experiments because you need to see even like that's your prompts do its works. Like if, if you're improving your, your prompt, you'll get 10x better uh, results. Yeah. And 
in order to improve your prompt, you need to do research. So sure. basically constructing some tables in Pandas and constructing some questions and feed it to the model, maybe do some fine tuning. So we will have consolidation within these three walls of the new AI, the old AI and engineering. I think that's what I see. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. And there is some uh, sort of intuitiveness uh, to it. I, I think that the one of the things that's specifically unclear to me in applying engineering here is it, it seems that a lot of the work that's being done around LLMs uh, has reduced the scope from quantitative to qualitative. So in the world of, uh, of classical machine learning, when you would uh, train uh, your dog greed detector that that you and, and I also did this. Uh, I remember I remember the fast AI course. Uh, so you train your dog breed detector. You could have a test set that has like 2,000 images and then run your model on those 2,000 images and get an actual score that shows you how good your model is, right? But with uh, prompt engineering uh, or however you want to call it, you see companies where they're doing like uh, two prompts uh, checking them out and then saying like, well, this looks good enough. Well, we might might as well try deploying this into into production. So I think that um, sort of in introducing the engineering aspect and the scientific aspects to everything that's uh, AI, uh, that the new AI is is really really hard. I'm not sure how that's going to how that's going to look. I'm curious if you if you have any thoughts on this. If that makes sense to you. So think about it like building an e-commerce with React and microservices building uh, versus building uh, an e-commerce website using WordPress. All right. You have like this access of professional and high quality results and good enough. And sure. you can, you can compare that to the access between ML engineers and data scientists. So if you want something like very high quality, very cheap, uh, like you want to improve your business economics, you'll have to invest more money having a data scientist that can have this kind of models to use them to, to create data and to train your own model or doing some fancy stuff like that, maybe developing your own model from scratch. I don't know. Uh, if you want to build something like MVP style, you're probably only going to use like uh, SaaS models and things like that, which are like at scale, they become very expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be like in between, so you, you know how to collaborate between these two roles or how to allow data scientists or ML engineers having higher, higher quality solutions without learning each other job, right? So. Sure. Think about it this way. If a data scientist, applied data scientist would have the tools to build a model that he can on, on his own will be able to deploy to production, it will be way better. Of course, if you'll take the engineer to take this model, it will be way more optimized. So yeah. there is a trade-off here. You need to choose what, what's better for your organization or for your scenario. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I'm I'm trying to think if like the the 
the aspect of like where LLMs enter the picture here to me is the consistency, right? Because uh, the, the, so everything you said, I agree with. I think that in the end, there's a variance to the skill levels and the outputs that you get. And you need to decide how much uh, money, time, whatever resources you're going to invest. And then according to that investment, you'll fall somewhere else on the spectrum. Um, I, I feel like uh, sort of consistency with LLMs is is uh, interesting here because if you're using ChatGPT and you type in something, it might do it. Usually it's not going to be consistent. And, and I don't mean consistent in the sense of uh, like reducing the temperature to zero and, and getting the same result every time. I mean consistent in the sense that slight rephrasing of the question can yield very different results. And the extreme case that everyone is now talking about is you can have two questions and have one word uh, uh, phrased differently. And then one response could be normal and the other could be offensive, right? So if you're Pepsi and you're looking to deploy this model to production in some context, I don't know, I just, uh, I didn't think this through. I don't know what use case. I sure Pepsi is trying to think of use cases to use ChatGPT. Uh, but if you're trying to do this, you want to make sure that it's not saying offensive stuff, right? So so I think that that's, that's going to be a huge engineering challenge. And I have no idea how people are planning on solving that, but that's something that I'm very interested in. So I think that's, that's an ongoing discovery yeah. of the market. Like there are sure. no right or wrong answers, right? Like mostly wrong answers right now, yes. because yeah. like, it's so funny, like this group of scientists, crazy scientists built something so huge that nobody understand how it works. So we, we do understand the mechanics of transformers, but we don't really understand how to optimize them. And every other day you hear about new strategy, how to attack it. So like, sure. uh, like we can talk about like, uh, uh, have you heard about trolls or sh chain of thoughts? Um, I'm familiar with chain of thought. What was the first one? So roles. So basically this is so funny. Like uh, a group of scientists created this research that discovered so they discover that if you basically explain someone how to think, he will be a better thinker. Like obviously, or they discover that you can apply that for LLM. So if you explain the model, how to think about mm. uh, some question, he will be better answering. So for example, you have the chain of thought that you are, you can ask the model, Hey, um, uh, what, what is uh, uh, three uh, plus two multiplied by four? And sure. it will give you the wrong answer. But if you you say, hey, this is the example. And the answer is I need to multiply two by four, which is eight. And then I'm adding it three. Then you'll get the right answer. And then we can instruct the model how to give us further answers. And another, another uh, mechanism or like um, technique is roles. Like if you give the model the right context of the conversation, you are a mathematician with studies mm -hmm. of experience and this and this, the model will be more in the context and in the state of mind, so-called of the mathematician. And it will give you uh, like more uh, terminology from the maths world and etc. Uh, mm -hmm. On top of that, like you have uh, agents 
in Miracle or React. React is like um, reason and acting. Like, mm -hmm. so you, you can tell a model, oh, all right, so I want you to choose from this kind of options how to answer me. But sure. it's not only that you answer me this way, you need to explain me why this is what you chose. So we just see like last month, OpenGPT was released, which sure. utilizing this kind of uh, techniques and it just changed everything. Like people just went crazy. Wow, it changed everything, but it actually didn't change anything. It has commoditized the knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and this is this is where things becoming interesting because now every kid can play with this kind of technologies and understand how to yield way better results from the model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that's interesting. Uh, like. To me, all of those discoveries stem from the fact that we, as you said, like we don't really understand how these models uh, work. We, we understand it mechanically, but we don't really understand how the magic happens. And so these discoveries are like, I don't know, um, yeah, like you, like you, you look at a kid and, and it's, a, I don't know, it sees its own shadow and it realizes that the shadow comes from it and things like that. So there's like uh, emergent behavior that's coming out of this thing that we didn't know in advance. So that's that's uh, leading us to more interesting applications. I, I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts about like the role data has to play here. So as I mentioned earlier, it has a very clear role in classical ML. I think it also has a very important role, like maybe I'm cheating, I'm telling you what I think before. I think it has a very important role to play in LLMs, but I'm curious how you think uh, about it. Yeah. So there is this like, famous uh, uh, paradigm, maybe like a um, uh, fa famous idiom in in uh, classical, uh, like the old-fashioned AI world, which is garbage in, garbage out. I think it couldn't be more accurate in the world of LLMs, because if you basically ask very silly questions, it will give you very bad answers. So like mm -hmm. if, if you, f you need to, to train the model, with very high quality data and many, many researchers and practitioners are debating that this is basically what uh, like moves the needle for open AI because they had very high quality data to train on. And you also need to ask really good questions. Like if I'm gonna uh, ask a very vague question, uh, like, summarize this content, it will give me like a good summary. But if I'm gonna give the prompt and very accurate uh, instructions, like uh, I want you to give me a friendly summary for eighth grade uh, readers and etc., it will be way more accurate. And to add to that is what are you summarizing, right? So if you want to create a summary based on your operational data, how do you construct the data from the operational systems, transform them to native language? And then how do you create the questions and the answers about this content? And how do you make sure that again, you didn't pull some information from the data warehouse that won't be available uh, on, uh, on the operational mode 
And because it's so easy, most of the engineers right now going with the intuitive approach, with, which is like within transactional requests, like online real-time requests to open AI to do some inference. But if you don't have the data, like what do you do? So it's even more important to have quality and accurate and, and existing data. But then... Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the way I phrase this to someone is that when you can't build the model, then the data becomes more important. And because in the world of LLMs, fewer people are going to build models. If you're listening to this and you only now are coming to this conclusion, I am, uh, I'm sorry to be the messenger of bad news. Um, but that means that the data becomes more critical because that's what's going to determine the result that you get as you alluded to earlier with the garbage in garbage out um, and so being able to select the right data and then um, sort of connect it to the model that you're going to fine-tune or adding or using the data to add logic before and after you prompt the model uh, is going to be very very uh, very meaningful in in the results that you're getting and uh, with respect to our conversation earlier like the product that you're going to get in the end because because we're that most of the people that are using OpenAI uh, or any other large language model provider are trying to build a product on top of that. Other GPT is just one of those examples, right? So, yeah, I think that's really, really important. Um, so, I, I think you said something really interesting. You said like you are building a product, and it's it's really helps to think about your product as your data. So, mm -hmm. what we're doing is we we as data scientists or ML engineers or architects or whatever, we're just struggling with data. We're just mm -hmm. shifting it, slicing it, dicing it. We're doing some magic with the data and then we feed it to some huge mathematical algorithm, whether we understand it or whether we don't, and we're getting some results. So when we do that, we need to be very thoughtful about what we control, which is the data. Because this is sure. probably the most deterministic in piece of information we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I guess continuing sort of this line of thought of the product, um, how are you thinking? And as you said earlier, it's early. Uh, I'm sure people won't uh, hold you to your words uh, too strongly. But how are you thinking about productionization of LLMs? Like some companies, a lot of the people that are listening here are listening because they are either having challenges or they're not having challenges, but they're trying to learn from other people about getting machine learning into the real world. How are you thinking about LLMs and getting them into the real world? Um, and maybe how that compares to the older models that we've done this with. So. Just for the sake of the conversation, I guess we are talking about um, hosted LLMs, right? We are not talking about the SaaS solutions like OpenAI or Azure OpenAI and etc. We are talking about Llama and like stable LLM and like the open source models. You can you can answer whichever one you prefer. Both. I'm I'm open to it. I think it's gonna be the same because. The same as the old world or the same between the hosted and the non-hosted? So, no, between the hosted and the... So, it's going to be the same for both of them. I, I, I'll explain. So, 
Uh, when you think about hosted LLMs, they are basically like any other SaaS API. Mm -hmm. So you just send some RPC, you send some requests, you get some response, that's it. You don't care about sure. the deployment of the model itself. When you think about the hosted LLM, it's just like deploying any other model, which is like deploying any other piece of technology. You have some complicated sets of requirements and you need to fulfill them. Uh, fortunately, the most complicated problems about LLMs are that they are very huge. Sure. They weigh a lot of mem like weigh a lot of uh, gigabytes or terabytes. So sure. it takes a while to load them and they utilizing a lot of memory. So this is very challenging. That's been said, the same problems were like it, it was, we had the same problems like last year and two years ago, we still had big models and there are great solutions out there in the market for large models. So Just, how is that different? Because we call them LLMs. It's, it's, it's yet another neural network, right? Fair enough. I mean, to, to be honest, I, I think that the, there is a question of like, whether or not the size, there is a threshold that presents new limitations, which I, I'm honestly, I'm still thinking about, I don't have any like strong so, conclusions so here. Usually the challenge with, with large models are like loading them because uh, it's very costly. So if you have a lot of data, like uh, a lot of requests, queries per, per second, then it makes a lot of sense. You, you are starting uh, a large machine, you're serving uh, the data nonstop. So you're utilizing this very expensive machine all the time. The challenge is starting when you're trying to scale, right? So sometimes, you might find yourself in a position that you have a very expensive machine that it took you a few minutes to heat up and to roam it up uh, to load this model, but nobody utilizing it. So how do you balance it? How do you balance it to provide like, like the perfect combination of uh, expense, uh, quality of service, and I don't know, like latency. Mm -hmm. um, but there are tools for that. It's not cheap, it's expensive, but there are solutions for that because the exact same problem occurred, I don't know, last year's when people tried to deploy stable diffusion models. Mm -hmm. oh, it's yeah, way I more expensive. Yeah. It's way more expensive. There is a lot of room for improvement, but it's still the same problem. Did that make sense? Sure. I mean, uh, one of the people that I spoke with uh, last week, um, I was in uh, Boston for conference, uh, was talking about a case where they had to split the model inference across multiple systems because the model was too large for a single GPU. Uh, and so I, I think there are some challenges that are like very extreme scale that you don't get often with, like in, in, there were old models that were huge, like even before we got to uh, LLM lands, like by definition, or just really big models and things like that. I think that it might be possible that we see a lot more of that. And those are things that if you're a startup, if you're a small company that wants to use it, uh, it's going to be, uh, pretty difficult to handle. I think that in those cases, 
companies will start by using the SaaS solutions and introducing their own uh, their own self-hosted versions later. Uh, but but I think there are some things that uh, I find interesting. I'm not sure if anyone has like a good out of the box uh, solution. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I'm I'm not sure I I have the answer, but yeah. uh, from what we know right now, like if you look at the large llama model, mm -hmm. it can fit with a uh, expensive but regular EC2 instance. Like uh, sure, it's not like the it's not like the cheaper the cheaper instances. It's more expensive if you want to get good quality, but it's something that you can you can use like an existing technology to serve it upon. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the future we will have more and more massively huge models. Uh, I think that's the beauty of it that we, we don't know and every other day a new model is released. It's so fun and exciting. Like it's crazy. That's true, but we also we can't go to massive language models because then the sh the acronym would be MLMs, and that's uh, uh, multi-level <laughs> marketing scams. So we need to find a different name. Uh, but oh, it's it, the technology to reduce or it's gonna be very expensive. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, there were, there's this uh, talk by Sam Altman that's making the rounds now that uh, OpenAI is not planning on increasing the size for their next model, but actually like finding ways to get better performance out of the same with smaller sizes so uh maybe maybe this is like the upper limit i don't know like uh if you if you take the human brain analogy then we have a few orders of magnitude to increase before we get to agi but maybe that's a that's a different discussion uh i guess i i wanted to ask about uh raptor ml right so this is something that you've been working on for for a while now and now it's uh it's out in the open, correct me if I'm wrong, but people could just go ahead and use it. So uh, can you explain what it is and, and why you created it? Yeah. So if you remember the process we've talked about where data scientists stopping being data scientists and starting to be applied data scientists, which is exactly the same with a different state of mind, Raptor tapping exactly in this process. So I, I it's, it's a project I'm doing on my spare time. It's not commercial. And I believe, and a lot of practitioners that help me uh, along the road believe that the only way to solve the productization problem is changing the state of mind. And it should be for every practitioner in the organization as well as for the organization itself. And we see more and more large corporates that adopting it, whether it's Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, etc. And after you, after you, you basically solved your problem using this new state of mind, then Raptor just tap into this process and help. So basically what it do, it lets you write your uh, feature engineering process and modeling process with your favorite uh, IDE or notebook. Then you can export it to Kubernetes. And after you export it into Kubernetes, the Raptor backend side are connecting to the real-time data sources, to your historical data sources, uh, scaling your system, uh, improving uh, your uh, your quality of service, and doing all of the model Jojo engineering side. 
uh, while your model gets deployed to SageMaker. So basically, there is no magic here because the real magic is changing the gears while you are developing your model. But if you did that, then Raptor just do all of the iterative and engineering overhead because these are some stuff we can generalize and do that for them. That's awesome. I, I actually like that approach where you're basically saying the tool assumes a certain state of mind or assumes a certain uh, workflow. And if you, if you take on that workflow and state of mind, then it's going to be really valuable. Like that's, that's a, a sort of a very clear uh, prerequisite that makes either will make sense or won't make sense for people. But I think that I like the coupling basically is what I'm saying. Um, and I'm guessing that you're also bringing a lot of your experience in these other areas that we spoke about in the past to make it work well. Um, but I, I like the idea of like, here is how you should work. And if you do, here is something that will make that workflow much uh, easier and more powerful and, and better. Um, yeah. I guess because this is sort of a question that a lot of people ask when they look at, at and this is open source again, so you can go ahead and use it uh, to the audience. But uh, because something that people might ask, uh, there are other tools that help you deploy or containerize mo the models and things like that. How, how is RaptorML different than those solutions? So I don't know, the ones that come up to, to my mind would be like uh, Bento or Selden, um, things like that. And then of course there's the cloud provider solutions, but let's, uh, let's say yeah, those are also maybe a good comparable. So Raptor uses Bento behind the scene. Oh, nice. Okay. So Raptor basically like behind the scene, it's, it's a huge computation engine for production. Mm -hmm. So with Raptor. Maybe I'll walk you through the process. So let's say I want to build a fraud detection model and I have these, I don't know, five features. One of them is I want to take the IP and translate it uh, to your country using geocode. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So sure. I, I need to write every feature as a function. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting as my input for my function, the data as it is, mm -hmm. and then I'm in, in a transactional manner, I'm writing how to transform the row into a column. Or, or I can add some decorators to instruct Raptor to do some aggregation. So I don't want to get one row. I want to get a few rows based on this rolling window. And I want from these rows to get this field and on top of that to do this aggregation. Uh, after I'm done constructing my features, I can say, hey, so I want to take this feature, this feature, and this feature, even, even if this uh, feature C is built on top of X and Y, and Raptor know how to, to, to build on top of that the DAG to build the data. And it gives me like a data set ready for training based on my regular data for training, like my CSV or parquet file. Hmm. After I got my data set as, as a pandas data set, I can train my model. And when I'm done, again, I'm wrapping it with some decorator and then I can say, Hey, Raptor, export it. So behind the scene, Raptor translate all of my Python functions into some Kubernetes manifest that can then be later 
translated to production code with Go. And it can take my model and containerize it using Bento. And using the power of Bento to deploy it to SageMaker or whatever. So the real magic here is how to make things how to make things make sense for data scientists and to process the data in production because the data is the problematic part. The data is the product. I like that, that a lot. Yes. So for the audience, uh, this is the first time Unvog uh, shared with me like this uh, presentation. So all my reactions were genuine, like my eyebrows going up. Uh, I'm going to repeat what you said and to make sure that I understood it. And also maybe this would be useful for the audience. But my answer to the question that I just asked you, according to what you just said, is that the other tools that I mentioned are uh, very focused on just deploying the model, whereas Raptor is thinking about this as an end-to-end -end system that needs to be uh, uh, deployed. And so you're not just looking at the model, which is important, but at just one of the pieces that you need to work with, but actually taking it back all the way to the raw data and getting me to the point where I have something that's usable, which I, I love. Again, we have another, I have another talk that I give where I say like a model is just another data transformation step. And so it seems like what you're doing with Raptor is sort of embodying that into uh, a system that uh, gets you to production based on Kubernetes, which is great because it means it's uh, sort of inherently more scalable. So that's awesome. I, I really like that. And again, I, I, this is the first time I'm hearing the pitch uh, for it. So, so this is really my, my genuine reaction. This is awesome. Um, I could just, I don't know, is there, yeah. Yeah, just so is there anything else? Awesome. Yeah. So we'll add the link to the description, um, of this episode, I guess, is there anything else, uh, before I ask you the last, uh, two Spitfire questions, uh, but, uh, um, is there anything else you'd like to add about DraftRML that people should know about it or, or how to use it or something like that? Yeah. A lot of people, when they try and Raptor or looking at the readme, trying to, to ask me like, what's the magic? Like you're doing a lot of more Jojo stuff, like how it works. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing any magic. It's like the data scientist shifting the gears toward production. That's the only requirement and the enablement of this solution. Without that, don't even bother. It's me. If you are not adopting the applied data science approach, this is not a tool for you because you can use Raptor and use Pandas inside of your, your feature definition. It won't work because you need to, to adopt this stateless and stateful state of mind, the transactional approach. So it's required a paradigm shift, but if you're adopting it, and if you want to be an applied data scientist, it's going to be worth it. Love that. So uh, you heard it here first. If you are a data scientist that wants to become more applied data scientist, get closer to production, think about data as a product, and you're looking for a tool that will help you do that uh, and go through that shift, it's open source. Go ahead and, and use, try out, use uh, Raptor ML. Uh, I'm definitely going to try it uh, and give you some feedback afterwards. So uh, before we wrap it up, tell me uh, something or a few things that... Uh, are true, but few people would agree with in the world of ML, MLOps, LLMOps. Wow. Okay. A few things that's true, but most of the people won't agree. I think that the, the MLOps is dead. <laughs> I think that only 50% agree with me. Uh, 
And I hope that the 50% that are not agreeing with me going to be very successful in the MLOps world because it, it's very challenging today. But it's, it's, it's not going to be like dead, dead. It's going to be dead like Phoenix. So I believe that we will see the MLOps and the AI tooling world evolve into something way more commoditized. We're going to see a lot of companies adopting the product-led growth, growth approach and allowing you to just click to, to, to register and to download. And most of the closed source companies or, or like top-down solutions going to die because in the world of, of the availability and the democratization of LLM, uh, it must be easy and it's must yeah. be reachable for users. So yeah, fair enough. And so to wrap it up, uh, any recommendations you'd like uh, to give to the audience aside from Raptor ML, which as I mentioned, I'll add in the description, uh, but it doesn't have to be data science related. You can recommend books, Netflix shows, whatever you want. Foundation, but, but not the foundation models. Like I meant the Apple TV show. It's actually a pretty good one. Uh, if you are not familiar with it, it's written by Isaac Asimov, which is one of the most famous sci-fi readers of all time. So take that with the budget from Apple and the production is amazing. The story is well written. Just, just watch it. If you are a true geek or if you are a fake geek, you're going to love it. I love it. I love it. Really good. Amazing. <laughs> any, any other recommendations? Yeah, I recommend too much stuff. Oh, oh, yeah, I have a really good one. Don't believe me. Just try things, research, experiment um, with Raptor, with other solutions, with this new state of mind approach, Miracle, or with React prompts. Just experiment with stuff. Get your hands dirty. I believe that's the best way to learn. I love that. I uh, totally agree. It's easier to... Uh, it's, it's not easier. It wasn't always easier, but today it's easier to try than to just, uh, accept sort of common wisdom. So just go ahead and try. Maybe you'll find out the next auto GPT, who knows? Uh, I guess for my side, I'll give one recommendation. I just finished reading a trilogy by, of books by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Uh, it's called, the trilogy is called the final architecture. Um, the first book is called shards of earth. It is uh, a lot of fun. It's a proper space opera, which I haven't uh, read in a, in a while. So um, I, I totally recommend it. Uh, and there's like a decent ending, so it's not left open in an annoying way. Uh, so you should totally read that. Aside from that, I, uh, I just uh, came back from uh, ODSC uh, in Boston, which was great. I gave a talk there. I think the talks are going to be public uh, later, so I'll share a link with that. But also... I had the talk a few weeks ago in Data Council Austin, which is now public. Uh, so I'm actually talking about somewhat related topic, which is machine learning and production. What does production even mean? So a lot of the ideas I shared here, I talk about them there. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Uh, but to finish off, I think the most interesting recommendation we have from this uh, episode is to try out uh, Raptor ML and to tell Almod what you think. He's looking for uh, feedback and everything. So I'm sure that could, that could be awesome. And if it helps you, that would be the most awesome. Um, 
So with that, Almog, thank you for joining. This was a pleasure. It's always fun talking with you, and now everyone gets to listen in. Uh, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.